Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife on 99.1 FM Talk. I'm this week's host, Ashley Sanchez. Each year, Endow rounds up dozens of volunteers who help our biologists count sage grouse as part of our conservation efforts. Here to explain the count are Upland Game Staff Specialist, Sean Espinoza, and Staff Conservation Educator, Julie Watson. We also have Aaron Keller here, Outdoor Education Coordinator, who will help me ask some questions today. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Great thanks, to have Ashley. you yeah, all thanks. here. And so we're going to talk about these counts, but I don't have a big wildlife background. I'm newer to Nevada, so I didn't have a lot of knowledge about sage grouse before moving here. So for people like me, what is a lek? Because that's what you guys are counting. Sure. And I'll, I'll take that question, Ashley. Um, so in our current sage grouse lek database, we have over 1,800 lek locations that we know of. Uh, it, throughout the state of Nevada. So it's it's a heavy burden to try and get to all of those. There are uh, a, a number of those leks that are active, and, um, and that means that we have at least two or more birds um, at least twice in a five-year period to, to become an active lek. Um, so they can be pretty small. They can be pretty large, anywhere from Two males all the way up to our largest lek is uh, about 119, 120 males, which is fairly large. So when you're saying lek, what, what exactly is a lek? Yeah, so, um, you know, sage-grouse kind of select these places on the landscape um, within the sagebrush steppe habitat that are kind of open areas uh, where they can see each other. Uh, sometimes they're meadows. Uh, sometimes they're just uh, low sage habitats within the, the sagebrush steppe. Um, they're pretty, um, they can range in elevation from 5,000 feet all the way up to 10,000 feet. We have a lek, uh, on top of Table Mountain in central Nevada that's in excess of 10,000 feet in elevation. Um, so there is quite a diversity in terms of habitats they're selecting. Um, uh, but the, the lek itself is kind of, um, uh, uh, gathering place for the males um other males can readily see them display um and it's sort of juxtaposed near um nesting habitat for the hens and a lot of people think that the males actually select those sites but it's really the hens that are dictating where those males are going to be congregated at so if there's quality nesting habitat nearby and those hens use that landscape then the males sort of fit in and try and find a spot that they like. Um, it's usually pretty shallow slope. They're not on real steep slopes, usually on um, southeast-facing aspects as well. So they're getting that early morning sunshine also. So pretty much the female choose, and then the men follow. Yep, and <laughs> it's usually one male that's the dominant male on the lek, and he does the majority of the breeding. Um, there's other males at the lek, certainly, that uh, try and get in on the action, but uh, it's usually only one or two males that are actually doing the majority of the breeding. And you see, when you see pictures of sage grouse, a lot of the time they're puffed up. They have these, I don't even know what to call them, on their chests. So that's during, that's while they're at these leks. Correct. Yeah. And so their plumage begins to change um, usually around December. 
and they get these long filiplumes plumes on the back of their neck that that stick out on the back of their uh behind their head um they have the yellow air sacs that puff out um and certainly that contributes to the noise that they're making but uh those pin feathers those white pin feathers on the breast of the male um are 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 pretty pointed and hard and when the male goes through his courtship display, he's actually taking his wings and swishing them against those pin feathers, and that's what's making the swishing sound um, uh, that's so distinctive for sage grouse. Right. That sound, coupled with the air sacs and the air coming out of those air sacs, is what distinguishes the dominant male from the subordinate males, and the female is making her choice based on the sound of that dominant male. Very interesting. So what exactly are you guys doing in these counts then? Julie, do you want to take this one? Yeah, so they are going out to these leks, which are way out sometimes, way (laughs) out in the backwoods in Nevada in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of nowhere. You went to one or tried to go to one yesterday. (laughs) Unsuccessfully. (laughs) Went out and got stuck yesterday (laughs) in the snow. So So that's an example of how far out these are. way out there uh, in in very beautiful places. That's why a lot of our a lot of people want to do it because they get to go out to these really lovely places and see these amazing birds. Um, but they're the volunteers are going out and seeing if the leks are active. They're also counting how many males and females are out there. And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. It's pretty pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, the, the females are pretty. Their attendance rate's pretty low. So there's only two or three females that might attend in a morning. Um, we've seen more than that, but it's really the males that we're interested in counting, and that allows us to get a population trend over time. doesn't really give us a population estimate, um, although we can kind of model. We can use the numbers collected in terms of number of males, and we can kind of model out populations and get a population estimate through some statistical uh, wizardry that, that folks do. Um, but really we can get a good estimate of trend over time. And, and sage-grouse populations are pretty cyclic. Uh, we can account for that, and it's really, you know, a three- to five-year window that we look at for sage-grouse. Yeah, and then also when the volunteers are out there, they're not just recording males and females, right? They're recording all the weather mm-hmm. that's occurring. And, and other wildlife, too, any other wildlife that they see while they're out there. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what about noise or anything that could affect, like, what they um, – like what might affect males coming to a lack or a female coming to a lack, right? Wind, precipitation, um, yeah, weather patterns. And those are all things that they're recording too. Right. So you guys are using a new application, right? Yes. So this will be the first season that our volunteers and our biologists will be using Survey123, which is an application by ArcGIS. And it's pretty cool because our volunteers will be able to enter their data in the field if they choose. They can also do it pen and paper if they'd like to. Um, but they can download it on their phones. They can enter all the data on there. And then when they get back into service, they can submit the data. And it's much better than our past, um, what we're using in the past because that created more steps. This will be a little more seamless than what we've been using in the past. And That'll save some effort and some time and be really good for us. I right. Think. Any yeah. any sort of <clears throat> middle step. Kind of is, streamlining right. it a little more. You're going to, mm-hmm. any errors that could occur mm-hmm. or, you know, anything like that you want to get rid of, right? Right. And, and so, you know, the errors in the past were usually associated with folks would go out to a lek 
preliminarily record that as a let count. And so we had to kind of separate out what was going on in the field and kind of go line by line, row by row in an Excel spreadsheet and determine what was the actual let count and so on and so forth. But with the LEC app, it can be QA'd, QC'd, and then automatically shipped right into our statewide database. Right on. And then, so then you guys are compiling that, and it's how many LECs again? Roughly? It's over 1,800 LECs. Um, there's probably about LECs. 700 that are active. And how many do we visit, roughly? We visit about 900 to 1,000 a wow. year. So that That's shows how much you guys rely on volunteers then with that many LECs. Yeah, there's no way you're visiting all those, you two. No, No, and we have (laughs) about 16 field biologists that Mm -hmm. that we also use. Um, Sometimes they're using a helicopter to help with efficiency and help to get to high elevation LECs. We're also using um, forward-looking infrared technology, uh, using a a vendor, a Waihee Air, that's helping us Mm -hmm. out. And so we're actually able to fly at a pretty high elevation over Lex. And with the forward-looking infrared, uh, we're getting an infrared spectral image of birds actually displaying on the ground. Um, That's been a pretty successful technique and is sort of new throughout the West. Um, And then uh, our traditional ground counts. uh, And you can imagine that if you get to about three leks in the morning on the ground, you're doing pretty good uh, right. with a vehicle. But with a helicopter, we can get to about 18 to 20. And so you think about that in terms of number of mornings it re- requires to get to 900 to mm-hmm. 1,000 leks. That's pretty impressive. That is, and you bring up a good point that you have to get up really early to do this. Because so heads up to volunteers. Yes. Is that what you're trying to get? <laughs> well, I'm saying that our volunteers that do do this are pretty dedicated and hardcore, I would say. they're getting. They have to get up really really early to be out at these leks before 8 a.m and they can be two three four hours away because again they're out in the middle of nowhere so they're crossing some really rough terrain and we even have some volunteers that will take a camper trailer out and they'll stay out there and record a couple leks and then they'll go home and they'll come back and they'll use it as their excuse to go camping yes yeah Mm -hmm. i was gonna say i want to do oh they enjoy it worst thing to be doing (laughs) to be volunteering for. oh yeah they they enjoy it (laughs) for sure yeah they'll go make a trip out of it and and go camp and they'll a lot of volunteers will visit the same leks year after year Mm -hmm. after year and and you know it's their traditional thing they do every year so it's it's great to have those type of volunteers for sure Mm -hmm. Yeah, and springtime's a great time to be out in those parts of Nevada. Um, not only do you have the experience with sage grouse, but you also have just springtime conditions and a lot of birds out singing and things like that. So it's a great time to be out. And there's not a lot of people out at that time of the year. And um, so I was going to ask, apologize if you already said this, but how long do these counts last for? They usually begin... Um, usually about middle of March, and then go through the end of April. That's about the extent of the breeding period. And the peak of male attendance is usually the first week of April. Okay, so it's about a month that these volunteers are out there working on this. So that's some dedication. Yeah, a month and a half-ish. Mm-hmm. month and a half, mm-hmm. yeah. And then to be a volunteer, so what does somebody need to do to become a volunteer with Department of Wildlife? So in order to become a volunteer with us at End Out, you need to go onto our website and there's a place where you can sign up. And once you're signed up, you can become a volunteer for all sorts of projects. And we have a list on our website on the volunteer page and there's just a little sign up button. You can sign yourself up 
and we have all sorts of cool projects. And this is something that Ashley and I have talked about before, that for people that are really interested in seeing wildlife, watching wildlife, being a part of wildlife, being a part of conservation, our volunteer projects are perfect for that. They're really, really cool things that we do here. The sage grouse lecks are, are really awesome. We also have sheep captures and um, elk captures and duck banding and all sorts of really fun stuff where people can really get up close and personal with wildlife. And it's like as long as you have the time and you're willing to get outside, it's the perfect opportunity. Yeah, and then we use the we use those volunteers' hours and mileage as matching funds for our federal grants. And there's a whole host of, of benefits of becoming a volunteer with Endow for sure. Nice. So a lot more to talk about. I even want to touch on volunteers after the break, but uh, we're running out of time for this part of the show. So we'll be right back with Julie, Sean, and Aaron. You're listening to Nevada Wild. If you enjoy Nevada Wild, feel free to leave us a positive review at iTunes. If you don't enjoy the show, we'd prefer you kept that to yourself. To learn more about hunting, angling, boating safety, and the great outdoors, check us out at ndow.org. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild. I'm Ashley Sanchez. In the first half of the show, we covered our annual sage-grouse let counts. We had just started talking about volunteer opportunities before the break, and volunteers are about to start doing a training. Julie, what can volunteers expect from this training? So they're going to show up very early in the morning, around 3.45 a.m., and we're going to take them out to elect so that they can see birds, and we can teach them how the protocol works so that they know to record the correct data and what the different birds look like, too. And then they'll come back and we'll have a classroom portion where we'll teach them where to submit their data and um, safety measures and emergency procedures and teach them a little bit more about sage grouse too so that they know what they're, what they're learning about, what they're looking at. Yeah, we'll <clears throat> also talk about uh, population status um, across the state and across the uh, west, the range of the species. And then uh, we'll also have uh, a little bit of information on you know, threats to habitat uh, that we've experienced here in Nevada. And then uh, and then we'll move into uh, basically um, the LEC protocol, LEC count protocol, and then uh, submitting their data. And then this really kicks it all off, kicks the, the count off, I guess you could say. Yeah, then in the next week or so, they will be going out and recording by themselves. Nice. Okay, well... Talking about all of this, what is the purpose of all this data? Like, wh- what are you going to use this for in the future? Yeah, so we use the data to kind of um, get a picture of population trend over time. Um, you know, where we sit right now, um, we have almost seventy to 80,000 records in our database of let counts from about 1953 through present. Um it's not very consistent in the early years, but it's been really consistent through about 1998 to present. So in that time period of over about the last 20 years, we've been pretty, our, our data set is pretty robust in being able to say what's going on with sage-grouse populations. Nice. And this is just one of many of the efforts you guys have going on right now. 
Yeah, for uh, our sage grouse grant covers many arenas, but uh, you know this is only one part of it. The other part really is um, you know some of our research projects we have going on around the state, and we're researching things from the effects of wildfire on sage grouse populations to uh, how transmission lines affect them. Um, uh, oil and gas developments, um, mineral developments, and also uh, geothermal developments. And we have a few spots around the state where we are, act as our control sites, basically. So we have the monitors in central Nevada and, and the Santa Rosas in the north-central part of the state that sort of serve as our control. We don't have a lot of human-induced impacts on the populations, and we have pretty quality habitat. So could you shed light on some of the information you guys have found over the years with all this research? Sure. Um, so it depends on what site you're in, but fire is not good. And we knew <laughs> that from the beginning. Um, so that's, no that's one of the major, <laughs> yeah, no surprise there. Um, but some of the, the smaller things that we learn during these research projects, looking at uh, vital rates. And what I mean by vital rates are, um, you know, uh, survival annually of the birds, um, productivity, so nest survival, uh, adult survival throughout the year, um, and then productivity in terms of um, broods and how many of those individuals, brood members, survive to the age of 50 days of age. Um, So that gives us a pretty good look at, around the state, how certain things might be affecting the birds, such as quality of habitat or things like noise, vehicle travel, um, uh, predator populations, and how those might be affecting certain life phases of the bird. And that really applies to how we might affect a management change, whether it's through some sort of uh, adjustment in a hunting season, a predator control effort, or Maybe we want to make adjustments to how uh, land use practice or uh, some other thing like that that we can actually affect a change on and that would have potential to help birds out. Right. And t- and 20 years of data is not a small number. I mean, that's a long time and a lot of effort to get to this point. So it's not like we're just making decisions just to make them. So Right. And and certainly it's helped in the realm of land use planning too, um, from a from a federal agency standpoint, from the BLM standpoint and, and also the, the Forest Service and how we make management recommendations that affect the birds' habitat. So um anything else you guys want to talk about? We have some time left um about sage grouse while i have you guys in here there's a lot to talk about about sage grouse sure and and one other thing about the the research projects and and i mentioned those vital rates and one thing that we saw in 2017 the winter of 2016 2017 really had an effect on annual survival that took a big dip uh during that year so we went from about 70% to 80% annual survival down to like 50% annual survival. And then uh, subsequent to that, we saw a real dip in um, nest survival rates. And then, uh, but one positive thing we did see was an increase in brood survival. And, And one of the things that I think can maybe help folks to understand that is, so during that winter of 2016, 17, birds came out of that winter in pretty rough shape and their ability to have a pretty healthy clutch of eggs probably declined and um but those 
uh, hens that were successful in bringing off a clutch of eggs, the, the brood members that came out of that clutch saw a lot of resources available because we had a good wet winter. There was uh, pretty good meadow conditions available for them. So um, those birds that actually brought off a, a, a successful clutch were, were a little bit more successful last year. That's Just actually not as really birds. interesting because you think more that. snow would be and more more water would be really good for them. And that's but, what yeah. we all thought initially mm-hmm. would happen. And we saw it in most upland game populations where it was a little bit surprising. Even mm. from a from a chucker partridge standpoint, we thought it was going to be a pretty good year for chucker this year. And they had a pretty tough time last winter Can, with survival. How, so it's kind of hard to f- think about this, but is it the timing of the water or is it the how cold it gets or what it... Well, I think can you put your finger on it? uh, There's multiple factors, but one of the things that uh, has certainly interested me is so we're coming out of a long-term drought. At least we hope we are, right? And that had an effect on sagebrush survival. So sagebrush wasn't as in good a shape after that drought, and we actually saw some sagebrush die off as Hmm. well. And we think that that might have contributed to body condition of sage grouse also. So Hmm. during the winter when Snow is covering all most of the sagebrush plants. You know, you want to have a diversity of height, of different sagebrush heights, so that they can get to sagebrush because that's what they're going to be eating uh, 99% of the time during the winter. Um, and they can't get to that because some of it's dead or, or a good portion of it's dead. That's going to have an effect on body condition. We think that might have played a role hmm. last year. And is that across northern Nevada or how's that? How do you kind of? I Is think it it's, it's 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 across a lot of different spots in okay. Nevada, and and it's not just drought. It, it could be drought induced, where we had this aroga moth infestation, which is mm-hmm. a, a moth that an insect that uh, uh, kind of attacks sagebrush leaves, right. uh, and and could also kill the plant. So all of this is kind of factoring in together, and then we've got these expansive fires that have removed sagebrush cover, and so there's not as much available winter range either. So that that could have a, had an impact on, on what, why we saw that annual survival dip so much. And so I think this is also another cool point is to, uh, to touch on is, um, how do you come up with these, num- like the survival and the numbers and what are you guys using? Yeah, that's through our research efforts. Okay. So through the, through the seven to 10 different research sites we have going on across the state that really, that those provide us with those, that vital rate information that can help us with management recommendations and at least knowing for sure what's going on with that population so right having that much data and all of those numbers just goes to show how important all these research projects are right and um they're not cheap projects either each one of our (laughs) research sites it's about a hundred thousand dollars a year at each research site so um and and even our, our license dollars, upland game stamp dollars, and volunteer time and effort all goes in to help match our sage grouse conservation grant. So that also helps with uh, matching for right. And then you have projects. a bunch of other groups that are helping with your projects or helping fund your projects, right? Yeah, Carson Valley Chucker Club, Nevada Chucker Foundation, Nevada Bighorns Unlimited all contribute funds to lots of money yep. into yep. into these type of projects. And yep. so, do you have any projects you're excited about this year? Or any restoration type stuff? You, uh, We have a few meadow enhancement projects. Um, one in the Hayes Canyon range that uh, I'm particularly excited about. 
um, a couple potentially on the Sheldon. Um, the Desotoya Mountains in central Nevada, uh, there's sort of a um, big collaborative effort um, in association with um, Smith Creek Ranch and the BLM and um, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service that has been ongoing out there for several years, also involves Nature Conservancy and, and, and of course, ourselves. But that's been a real kind of white hat project over the years in terms of um, conifer removal, uh, wild horse gathers, uh, riparian restoration, all those sort of things have have really uh, created a more sustainable and suitable habitat for sage grouse in that part part of the world. So that's right. always been an exciting project. Yeah, huge me. project, and we hear about it. Seems like every year there's something going on in that country. Yep. So. Yep. And then how long will it take to kind of see the fruits of that labor? I mean, is it immediate or is it, it something that takes a while? Yeah, it's not something that is, is immediate. Okay. Um, climate weather factors always kind of can hamper the effects of those types of efforts. Um, usually it's a three to five year process to really see the fruits of that labor. Um, and, and I that's should hoping mention. There's not a fire. That's <laughs> yeah. hoping there's not a fire, fire or something else that could yeah. happen. Yeah. Um, and, and there's some great projects, too, in eastern Nevada. Uh, the Ely District, the BLM, has really been aggressive uh, in some of their projects out there, and I think we've seen some positives out of that, too. Right. And and it's not just sage-grouse that reap the benefits of, of these projects, right? Sure. It can be anything from pronghorn to mule deer uh, in terms of game species and then a, a litany of other sagebrush obligate species. Right. Um, the diversity in Nevada is pretty pretty broad and, and yeah. so they're all gaining benefits. Yeah, we have hundreds. We've hundreds. often heard the term yeah. that there's probably 350 species that depend on sagebrush habitats. Wow, so. Nice. So all those projects are, are helping everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, help, helping all the wildlife. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's the intent and, and you know, you, you don't want to be a one-size-fits-all and certainly have a diversity of habitats out there and that's certainly something that we consider during these projects also. Right. Any other volunteer opportunities people should keep their eye out for, Julie? Um, Actually, March 10th, there is a big wood duck event, and it's kind of the precursor to a bunch of wood duck volunteer projects that are pretty cool. So if you like ducks and you like being (laughs) near ducks, it's a really cool project, and they do lots of stuff that lets you be a part of cannon nets and banding you guys gonna ducks. use cannon nets for sage grouse <laughs> no no we've tried that it's not been very successful but the wood duck project's fairly close too it's out by fallon yes. so mm-hmm. that's an easy yeah. one to get to mm-hmm. get well and same with a lot of our lex they're mm-hmm. i mean they're not all in the middle of nowhere right some are pretty close i mean we have some ones that are within an hour from most yeah. cities yeah. So. right right mm-hmm. Well, we are running out of time. I feel like there's still so much to talk about, but that is all the time we have today. Thank you guys for listening to Nevada Wild. again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife.